Hello and welcome to episode 261 of the Rand Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm Angel. I am Kevin. Is this the earliest that we've uh, recorded an episode? Depends on your definition of earliest. In the well, day. Yes, earliest it is early. Well, 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 like at midnight or like sunrise after after sunrise. After sunrise. Because Angel and I've oh, because Angel and I have definitely done like a two a.m. recording once. Um, maybe six. Or we ne- I think this we is never a running joke six. that I always throw out, and maybe we just never got to it. Unfortunately, yeah. You're lucky that I got up at the time that I did for this. You want me to wake up at six? <laughs> yeah, but then you'd be done I, with it already. They'd be like, "Well, I was done three hours ago." I, as the guy that's like. The one that likes to stick to a schedule will not wake up at six. I'd rather delay the show than wake up at six. Like that six is crazy, Angel. That there's a line that you have crossed with the idea of six a.m. Like, no, <laughs> no, never, never. But this is one of the earlier episodes. For those listening, we are recording this the morning it goes up, opposed to a day or two in advance. So fresh off the press when you guys when it hits your uh, podcast feed. But I was saying welcome to the episode, and I should. More specifically, say welcome to an episode where we're, as our title says, talking shop. Uh, two types of shop, really. There's everything happening inside the eShop, as we'll be sharing our highlights from this past week's Indie World Showcase, including impressions of one of the many shadow drops of the day, uh, a game called Islanders Console Edition. And then there's the shop in the business sense, as we'll be ta- uh, talking, yeah, talking about or taking a look at uh, Nintendo's latest quarterly financials and discussing the true power of the supposed Switch bump, especially in the void left behind by Animal Crossing, which was a massive void to be honest uh but along the way we're also gonna have a bunch of other stuff too there's rumors of gta on uh, switch there's impressions of mario golf's new donk city course there's the plight of angel trying to repair his wii u uh there's potential first details or a detail on the mario movie coming next year so easiest way per usual to make sure you hear what you want to hear is either to come along for the full ride or if you're looking specifically for a segment there are timestamps over at ramtown.com on this episode's blog post um, so yeah, you, you gents ready? Any opening thoughts for this lovely episode with a bit of a forced theme just to make our title work? Um, nothing in particular outside of, um, damn, Nintendo needs to get Sonic Racing Transformed ported to the Switch already. Been playing that a lot on PC and, damn. So I like good. how this is, uh, Nintendo's responsibility even though it's a Sega game. Hey. Do you not want to like money had it essentially? Yeah, Nintendo could push for it. I mean, they've done that before. Yeah, okay. Sometimes that makes it happen faster. I mean, I don't know if if it wasn't for Nintendo's involvement that Bayonetta wouldn't have come over, or if it was like Sega going to Nintendo. Yeah, no, that's but, true. Uh, Nintendo basically bought the game. <laughs> it was like, we'll do it. Just give us here, take some money for the IP. We'll take care of it. Then again, um, so I guess they could do that. But then again, I know. I guess they probably wouldn't do that just because. Yeah, they would have to you know put a better racing game than Mario Kart 8 on their console and they probably like didn't want to have to deal with that again. Wow, coming in hot on a Sunday morning here. Just dropping bombs there. <laughs> yeah. But, literally, um, the, literally the only thing that I can say Mario Kart 8 has over this one is just a consistent frame rate but that's kind of fixed on the computer. Only problem now that I have is the occasional crash when I land on water in some levels but I assume you mean in not Sonic, not Mario. Yeah, in Sonic. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Mario yeah, yeah. Kart. I don't think I've ever encountered like a an issue of any kind. Now that I, I don't think it. I've ever. It is in Mario Kart Eight. I mean, there's definitely like glitches galore, like in I don't know, and Mario Kart sixty four, a few in Double Dash and DS, but definitely never in the Wii U going forward. Wii U and on. I don't think I've oh. ever had a game full on crash on me. 
Maybe once. Maybe one of the indies that we got from like a small time developer that you know it was their first game and that sort of thing. But I don't Pretty think sure had, like, Breath of the Wild has crashed on me. Kevin, have you ever ever had a Wii we we switch any of the any Nintendo system game like full on crash on you? Full on crash? I can't think of a single one. Right? Like it seems so. I mean, I guess Angels had the experience, but it seems so weird and I, rare. I'm sure that I probably have. I'm I'm sure that like maybe during a Breath of the Wild or Odyssey session it's crashed, but not to the like the fact that I can't remember it just means that it's yeah, not a yeah. big deal. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm pretty sure I maybe crashed once, just because I just recall just, like, immediately, you know, just turning it back on and continuing where I left off. So it's like, oh, yeah. No, that's okay. not so bad, then. It's, yeah. like, a couple seconds, but, you know, I guess in older consoles, at least before the Switch, it definitely takes a little longer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, on that note, check out this horrible transition I just saw on the fly. Um, who's ready for a crash course in Indie World? Should we get to the first bucket of shop of this episode, shop number one? Yeah, it's, uh, let's, let's do it. All right. Sorry, so I, this is also kind of a, uh, usually I have an energy drink whenever we do these recordings, but I ran out, so I have to I have to drink Coca Cola Zero Sugar, and they changed the formula, and it sucks. I'm sorry, I still got here, the caffeine I know how much that, of a Coke uh, that I need. You were a Coke Zero fiend prior, prior to it changing, right? Wait, so. I guess you have to wait for a Coke Zero Classic, or this is it? Like they just <laughs> messed it up. No, I'm I'm hoping that they do a Coke Zero Classic because this is atrocious. Uh, it's not bad, but as opposed to <laughs> when I was drinking three cans a day, I'm like only drinking one can every two days. So what exactly is different? Is it like just less sweet? Oh, the or... flavor. Yeah, it's I I can't even put my finger on what's different. Mm-hmm. I just know that it's not the same. Mm. Damn. And yet, that's all you have to motivate you through. Ah, I spilled it. <laughs> now you have even less. Censor. Uh, Six o whatever timestamp that was. Uh, yeah, but I yeah. See. Anyway, while you, while you, uh, you know, take care of your Coke Zero conundrum over there. Uh, we let's jump into the indie world. Um, it also includes the what we're playing segment because that's the game we've been playing. So uh, is within indie world. So yeah, that's the eShop. That's all happening on eShop. Uh. More specifically, we're talking about the wave of 19 new indie games that are coming to the eShop that we saw in the Indie World Showcase, seven of which, I might add, all shadow drop the day of the show, which... It's a lot. I don't know. That seems like a lot. Like, it literally is a lot. Over a third of the show was a same-day release, and I, I actually, for some strange reason, decided to do the math, and um, if you're the type of, like, Switch diehard that would buy every high-profile new indie game... And, you know, many of these were, like, Axiom Verge 2 and Boyfriend Dungeon, Garden Story, like, really anticipated games. If you were to buy all of them at once, that's $126 of games that were released at once. So I guess the question is, it's since... It's not that bad, I guess. It's not it's that, that bad. Two games? Qu- two fully-priced games? Tr- yeah. True. If you think of it that way, it's actually a bargain. But <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess the question is, since this might be the most same-day shadow drops Nintendo's ever done in a presentation... In your guys' opinion, is it good or bad to actually launch that much at once? I would say it's not good to drop this many out. I think it would have been a lot cooler and would have incentivized me to also, like, download some of these if they did them, like, one a day or, like, you know, a week of indies. Like, every day a new indie game or something. At least just just space them out. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Indie World Week. Yeah, just, like, spread it out over a week. I mean, we have seven games, seven days. Or maybe they'll just skip the weekends because I guess they don't want to upload stuff on the weekend but you know just spread them out in some way that way 
every game at least gets some time to shine. I mean, if, if you're dropping them all at once, I bet even someone that downloaded all of them may not even get to one till way later, or you know, or may right. just be like, oh damn, it's too many. I think I'm going to start with these two or this one, and they just may never get to the other one just because mm-hmm. I don't, you know, choice paralysis and all that. But, yeah, I mean, does it? Are you more of a less is more type guy like Angel Kevin, or do you like kind of having this much variety all in one shot? Uh, I like having the variety. If if I were to choose between one, uh, would they drop them steadily or all of them at the same time? I probably would go all at the same time, just because it gives a players like uh, games one, two, and three aren't doing it for me, but game four is. Yeah, I think I think to that point, I think the the kind of exposure that having them all at once provides is actually kind of useful. It's kind of a similar mode to like Indie World as a whole, right? Because like you know, what's the phrase? A rising tide lifts all boats, or something like that. Because like not only would you, you know, have every article come out to like, look at all these games that are in the indie world, and if you're a smaller time guy, you get to piggyback off Axiom Verge 2's hype or piggyback off, you know, Boyfriend Dungeon or what have you. But if you're a game that launches in tandem with them, theoretically, you also have this other, which I noticed, second wave of articles where it's like now available on Switch, these great, you know, Axiom Verge and six other great indies and your, or six other new indies. And just by being like, oh, wait, Axiom Verge out? And like researching that, you find out about a game like... I don't know, uh, Islanders or or whatever, or uh, you know, Curious Expedition Two, or things that you may not have really noticed or cared about. So, in that, in, from that perspective, yeah, I think I think it kind of makes sense to do it. Um, but I I do, to Angel's point, like it. I feel like it depends on how Nintendo curates it, because yeah, the the idea that like you may have choice paralysis, because there are two games in the drop that I kind of noticed were. I mean, they're not the same, but if you look at Boyfriend Dungeon, you look at Necrobarista, and Necrobarista is a name for a game when you don't have any further context for it, it's just a bizarre name for a game. <laughs> but anyway, they're both kind of story heavy. They're both very anime influenced in style, so like I could see a choice paralysis popping up there that could hurt one more and help the other you know i mean like it it's kind of a gamble if nintendo doesn't cure it like obviously if you're getting slime rancher portable edition you're not necessarily you know being like oh man i'm slime rancher this first person slime collecting game versus a uh, curious exhibition 2 a roguelike mm. like it's a little easier to make the choice but when they're that close together like uh, boyfriend dungeon or necrobrewster or at least give the impression i could see the choice paralysis kind of setting in so i i guess it could go either way, in my opinion. But I yeah, do, the, I do think you guys like, both have points. Those are like some assumptions that go into, I guess, like why I prefer the spread out movement, just because, you know, like even like say the game I was particularly interested in isn't going to be available if I look at the schedule, and it's like, oh, it's not going to be available till like a week from now. Right. Like personally, I'm like, all right, cool. That gives me a week to play more of these other games because you know, again, our time is limited and all that fun stuff. <laughs> our time on Earth. Yep. We all yeah. have this backlog, you know, might as well, you know, a, a, any, the more time I have to beat something, the better. I mean, I'm already drowning in backlog, haven't even started Ace, the Great Ace Attorney, which is definitely my most anticipated game of this year so far. And Yeah, I mean, we yeah, were going to talk about this episode, but, you know, you got, we, we, neither of us have started it yet, so. <laughs> yeah, so at the very least, I could at least like aim to do like the first chapter, which you know does give you pretty much everything you need to know about the mechanics of the game of an Eternity yeah. game usually. But you know, to that point, um, yeah, I would prefer a, sched- a spread out schedule for that matter, just to give you more time right. to beat all these other things. 
I, I do think for all the developers who made it into the Shadow Drop Palooza or, you know, just the showcase itself, you know, props for getting those extra eyeballs on your game. Because that's already a huge step in a year where the eShop has already exceeded 900 releases since the start of the calendar year. Which, to be clear, is like a third more games in the same time frame than we saw in 2020 and 2019. And, you know, just being able to stand above that and get some attention is, you know, that good for them. They're already, you know, one, two, three, eight, ten steps ahead of what so many other games are. So um, I think there are a few specific titles actually caught our eye in the indie world, uh, among those 19 that managed to kind of rise above. And uh, I know, Kevin, Angel, you guys have a few. Angel, do you want to go first with yours? or? Yeah, this one kind of interesting only because I already knew about it or I randomly heard about it through my brother, and it's Loop Hero. I just saw him like randomly playing this game, and he's very much into roguelikes, like, you know, your Binding of Isaac, and I don't know if he'd actually played Hades or not, but, you know, he really loves that Binding of Isaac style gameplay. And this game is... I guess similar to a roguelike, just in the sense that things are randomly generated and it's about survival. But it's very, very different and I guess in execution, because you know, one is a shooter of sorts and this is like a weird card turn based thing. Essentially you have a hero that, you know, is setting off a little adventure, but they go they they run around in a loop. Like a loop around a village, around like the forest, and they're just doing loops and loops and loops. You encounter enemies along those loops, you engage in turn-based fights, you defeat the enemies, you rank up, and then you get these cards, and these cards are like terrain cards, and they allow you to essentially add some mountains, which, you know, have some beneficial effects of maybe giving you some health back, but when you add a mountain card, it might also spawn, like, a giant troll on the path, so now you have to deal with the slimes and the giant troll. So the more you develop your loop, the more, you know, perilous it gets, but also the more potential you have for rewards. And I guess at any point you can choose to, like, exit your camp before you die to essentially build up your resources, and then you can go back to the loop to try to, you know, escalate that further. So it's kind of like a risk-reward thing, because, you know, if you die, then presumably... I actually don't know if this is true, but... Because I haven't had a chance to play it myself, but... I don't know, it looks intriguing. Like, it looks like something I might check out on the Switch. But I just like the idea of just a turn-based, randomly generated, I guess... What's that other word I'm looking for? I guess build your own death simulator. I don't know. <laughs> it seems interesting. <laughs> I It, when I saw it, looked I was just like immediately like, oh, this must be a... Uh... Devolver Digital game, like just something about the vibe of it, and then sure enough, it was Devolver Digital. So they definitely have kind of a, a mo they stick to. <laughs> but yeah, it, I, I could see it being popular among um, roguelike folk for sure. Yeah, and it's out. I think. Wait, so so Elvis played it on what Steam? Yeah, he played it on Steam, and it just looks like a game you could play in quick bursts, which like uh, just seems to really benefit it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the fact yeah, that it's coming is... to Switch was just kind of pleasantly surprising. Yeah, I think this is part of that. There's like a there's like 
there are really two chunks of game in the indie world, I feel like. There were some that were timed exclusive that hadn't hit any system yet, but will be first on Switch. And then there's a bunch of games that are, like, catching up on Switch. Because this isn't even out till winter, and, you know, it's been on Steam Damn. for probably a while. But there isn't, like, that in-between where it's, like, a game that launches across multiple platforms at once. I think the only one that did that was Axiom Verge, maybe. But every single other one is either catching up or getting ahead. It's just kind of funny how that shook out. Yeah, because there's a lot of instances where I know, like, we'll be talking about an indie game in October. It's like, oh, this game is coming to Switch, and it looks pretty cool. Cool. And then he's like, "Oh, damn, it's been on Steam like forever." Like, oh, yeah, damn, yeah, but right. I mean, it goes right. like, like, forever, <laughs> forever since the dawn of time. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it just kind of goes to the point that like because Switch is you know a handheld and everything, they can sell repackage old stuff and, and still sell it because you you're selling a different experience with that game, I guess. Um, but was that was that your was that your biggie or or any others or? No, that's pretty much it. I mean, other things, you know, like they seemed interesting. There's a lot of variety this time. Not as many mm-hmm. RC2D mm-hmm. platformers. A lot of... <laughs> I feel like we're getting more narrative games now or just like, I yeah. don't know, quiet, mellow narratives. I don't know. I haven't figured out quite the name for them yet, but... Yeah, like, no, I noticed that it's too. It's starting to be I... a little too many now, but... Yeah, you know, it's, it's... It's a popular it, market, know, I guess. There's trends, things are cyclical, like, yeah, indie platforms have given way to narrative-driven, hand-drawn, dialogue-box-heavy stories, and and then there's stuff that, you know, was just kind of, like, not like any of those things. Like, I know, Kevin, I think both of the ones that you mentioned you want to talk about are definitely not either of those genres. Um, what what were your highlights? Uh, Bomber, both games that aren't, that didn't get shadow-dropped or whatever you want to call it, that didn't drop on yeah. the uh, indie world, indie world. Uh, the first one being Bomb Rush Cyberpunk, which looks like the spiritual successor to Jet Set Radio. And mm-hmm. I played a lot of Jet Set Radio on my Vita, and that game was really fun to just pick up and play in some bursts. Uh, never played Jet Grind Radio Future, which was the sequel on Xbox. But regardless, uh, Sega doesn't want to make a, a brand new Jet Set Radio. So a couple of uh, fans, I, I think they're they're fans, just decided to go ahead and make this game. I don't know it the the OST for like the trailer and just the art style look really really nice. It looks like mm-hmm. if they brought Jet Set Radio uh, into the future, which is uh, I'm really looking forward to playing. On the Didn't other, the actual know? composer for yeah, it is the actual composer. I was about to say that. Yeah, uh, the guy named Naganuma who did the music for actual Jet Set Radio and more recently like the Yakuza games. They hired him. He's doing the music. Okay, yeah, that's, huh. that that makes sense. Why the, yeah, why it sounds so cool. Yeah, it's funny how like Sega is always. This always happens to them. Like they're so stubborn with their thinking that franchise is over and done with, and then an indie just swoops in, copies the game wholesale. I mean, literally, they're poaching a high-profile Sega employee to do it, and then releases it with no problem. I mean, this this is not the first well, time. I mean, is Sega going to go after them like they did with um, no. the Crazy Taxi remake, or was that like? But some even other then, Sega. Thing? I don't even think Sega really went after the Crazy Taxi remake. I mean, the Crazy Taxi remake, where some people are just like, "Fine, we'll make Crazy Taxi," and they made what was it called, like Taxi Chaos or Taxi? It must have been Taxi Chaos or something like that. But um, like. Gameplay-wise, it was basically the same. They just added a jump button. And then Sega at one point was supposedly attached to the European release, and then they weren't. But then that was it. It was over. The game came out. That was that. And then, like, even Monkey Ball, like, it took them a while to get that going. And there was some indie game called Marble It Up on Switch that didn't have the same personality but still got decent reviews. And, you know, now I think Sega's starting to wise up a bit because you have, like, 
Monkey Ball has two entries on Switch. You know, the new one, Banana Mania, actually has Beat from Jet Set Radio in it. Uh, he's playable. So at least on a fan service level, they're starting to get it. But it's just it's always funny to see a company say, like, nah, nobody wants this. And then an indie comes along, gets a decent amount of attention because it turns out a decent number of people do want it. And, you know, I think the fact that Nintendo locked in Bomb Rush Cyberpunk as a timed exclusive for Switch just kind of points to there is a demand for it on some level. Personally, I'm just glad it's I'm just glad its initials are BRC and not JSR because anytime I use JSR in line, which is just my initials, people always assume <laughs> it's like I've gotten it in Nintendo forums. I got it on Reddit and Reset Air. Like people are always like, oh, you're really into JSR. And I'm like, I've never actually played it. Uh, I mean, it looks cool. I'm forgetting that you actually played it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so that, that was your first one, right, Kevin? Yeah, the first one. And then the. The second one is just pure gameplay. Uh, Tetris Effect Connected. Tetris Effect was one of my favorite games of all time and definitely gives Tetris DS a run for its money as the best Tetris game. Uh, for those that don't know, it's produced by the studio. Um, I, th- I forget the name of the studio, but the head of the studio is Tetsuya Mizuguchi. Yeah, Enhanced. There we go. Um, who Tetsuya Mizuguchi is the mastermind behind Rez, and uh, was that there's a game on the PSP that he did? I think it was called like Lumens. Oh well, well, aside from from Luminous, uh, or Luminous, I mean, I think it, you it know, was, I'm always confused by the name Lu- Luminous because like it it's spelled Lumens. I used to pronounce it Luminous when I was an idiot and a kid, <laughs> but like wow. I don't know what is it Luminous? Yeah, it's Luminous. Okay, I'm just dumb. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, Luminous is also <laughs> super, super fun game. I think the Switch got a Luminous game, if I'm not mistaken. It did. It did. It got a remaster a few years I ago. Yeah. And it's on probably, sale on the eShop all the time. I should probably play that because Luminous is super fun. Uh, but anyways, Tetris Effect is... Uh, it's Tetris with an incredible spin where... It has an effect. The, yeah, the effect being these awesome visualizers <laughs> where... Uh, these awesome visualizers that look super trippy, that look super mm-hmm. cool, and then the music, uh, I guess you get music cues whenever you drop a block or whenever you clear a line, and it's all procedurally generated, at, but it all sounds in sync. It's it's super cool what they did with this game. And uh, Connected is the like multiplayer expansion, because originally it didn't have multiplayer. Um, mm-hmm. So that'll be fun. I, I never got around to playing the the uh, multiplayer because the I originally bought it on PS4 and that just came with bare bones uh, Tetris Effect it wasn't until after Connected came out I believe on the Epic Game Store and Xbox that they eventually decided to release it on the PS4 and I don't have a Sony console anymore so uh, this is probably going to be the way that I play it now and it is cross play so you can still play with all the Sony folk but you don't have a Sony console anymore what happened? nope so my PS5. Oh, interesting. And you don't have a PS4? Nope, do not have a PS4. Interesting. Huh. I oh, do also, have VR um, here, but I Tetris how much this game loses without the VR. Because I've heard that, like, yeah, that's some, like, professional was... Tetris players say that, like, oh, yeah, like, you need to play this in VR. It's, like, the well, only way. Uh, professional Tetris players just say that because the uh, VR the headset, the, the, the PlayStation VR headset, the display runs at 90 hertz as opposed to the 60 hertz that a TV would 
would run at. Oh. And so that, that, uh, that extra, like, that, I guess that extra lack of input lag, uh, I don't know. How to, <laughs> well, I guess that extra input time, uh, really helps out. And yeah, I, when I played in VR, I definitely did sense that, oh, I'm actually moving much, much faster. Even just like the, the mood of VR, look, I got, I got, I've only tried Tetris Effect once, which was at E3 when it debuted on PlayStation VR. And like, it's a weird game to play at a convention because, you know, the whole package is such a, a, a vibe, a mood, what, whatever the kids want to call that term. But, uh, but the music like wasn't, the music itself wasn't particularly audible in the moment. And I was really distracted by the visuals because I didn't know what was going on. And I like, there's so much happening. I just immediately lost and I was made fun of by the, the booth rep, which I hate to break the booth rep guy, but I got like second or third place in Tetris 99 multiple times. So I'm not bad at Tetris, but even with that, like sort of short changed experience. Yeah. I, it playing it in VR, like having it surround you like that. Definitely the surround sound, what little I could hear. It definitely feels like the preferred way to go. The final um, board of Tetris yeah. effect uh, almost brought me to tears. Like, that's how beautiful it is. Wow. I mean, I the thing that's kind of given me hope in light of it not being VR is, well, two things. One, visual the visuals are going to impress on Switch because, it, depending on what you play it on, because it launches day and date just by coincidence, I think, with the OLED Switch. So, at least when I play it, you know, with mine, it's going to be the like OLED the, Switch the vibrant... The OLED Switch doesn't come out till October 8th, oh, which yeah. is when this comes out. But yeah, so the visuals like will seem way more vibrant and intense than basically anything I've experienced in Switch handheld mode up to that point. So like it does kind of have that, I guess. But yeah, I think um, Angel, to your point about like the loss in VR, um, I guess it the gains in the multiplayer that Kevin were talking about kind of like the balancing act, right? Because like there's two modes that are very different from any other Tetris, I guess, from what I was reading. One is um, connected, which is where the subtitle comes from. And literally you have three individual play fields, three people, and then the play fields merge and you're doing co-op Tetris. And then there's, I guess, something called zones where it's like you can actually freeze time to move blocks and make bigger combos. And that's sort of a one-on-one mode or something. So, yeah, like it, it's funny you mentioned this one because this is actually like <laughs> – this is one of my three from the indie world that I was also super into. Um in part, not just because it, I like Tetris and like I think Tetris 99 and Tetris DS have taught me that I'm a sucker for gimmicks stacked on top of Tetris, but um, also like one game you didn't mention, Kevin, that uh, the, the dude behind this is responsible for is in collaboration, in collaboration with Sakurai, Medios, which is a very underrated and very fun DS puzzle game. Medios and so, Lumos came out around the same time and I always yeah, got them confused. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, they were basically he the guy uh, whatever his name is um, Mizuguchi or that's Mizuguchi right he yeah, was Mizuguchi. definitely playing the field strategically like oh well I'll put something on DS I'll put something on PSP whichever one takes off awesome because that was I think it was like a year or two into both systems so it was it wasn't clear who was gonna be the front runner so he, that was smart of him <laughs> but but yeah I'm I'm pretty excited for Tetris Effect myself as well. Um, I think actually, yeah, I would say Tetris is probably one of three standouts in the showcase uh, for me. I don't know if you had any others, Ken, before I get to mine. Were there any others? Mm, nothing that stood out too much. I believe there actually okay. was one, but I forgot. Hold on. Let me see the list. Sure. Keep rambling. I'll get back to you. Okay. Oh, I'm good at that. Don't you worry. But yeah, I was going to say, I think Tetris Effect was one of like three standouts for me. And maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe it's a sign I'm getting old and I want things that are less intense. Or maybe it's just... 
you know, a stressful week or something, but all, all three of my standouts from this presentation just looked really like chill, like laid back, relaxing, more leisurely. I mean, sure, Tetris can get intense. But oh, like, I, I found, I saw it. Metal Slug Tactics, uh, but I think I've already talked about that. Oh yeah, yeah, Metal Slug. Yeah, that's actually, it's funny because that one would probably made my list if we didn't already see it at E3 when it was announced just for Steam and I was already like, okay. And then Advance Wars was announced the next day. I'm like, oh, okay. So if it was like just the debut right now, I'd probably have been more into it, honestly. But, um, but yeah, of the ones I was into, yeah, there's like these more leisurely ones. Like Angel, you were saying you're looking for like kind of the term for like these kind of narrative driven, slowed down experiences. These aren't the narrative driven ones, but they are also the kind of slowed down experiences. And yeah, it's like that ethos, the more like laid back play was also what drew me to Tome and to Islanders uh, console edition. So Tome, first, let's start with that one. There's less to say here since the game isn't actually out until the fall. But it seems to kind of be a hybrid of like Pokemon Snap and the photography mode of Wind Waker HD. And I'm a sucker for photography modes in games. i pretty sure I told you guys how long I spent back when Mario Odyssey came out. Like just messing with photos and taking screenshots and turning them into photos instead of actually like progressing through a level. So here with Tome, um, you know, that immediately caught my attention and you're exploring this little isometric world. Um, you're essentially completing photo objectives for different characters to help them resolve whatever issues they may have. And uh, it looks like as you go, you progress to newer portions of the world by getting items that let you speak with new characters. So in the trailer, they show that you complete one photo objective, you get some sunglasses, those sunglasses let you see a ghost, you now it's a new photo objective and you just kind of make your way through it. What's so nice though is like it just looks really laid back. Like the entire game is hand drawn. It's kind of this black and white cartoony style. It has a bit of a passing resemblance to a short hike. Um, the music is really soft and ambient. Uh, it just looks like this really low key, low stakes adventure where you're just literally doing the photography challenges of Wind Waker HD just as a standalone game. And I guess with some Pokemon Snap elements in terms of, you know, overarching. Uh, photo-oriented storyline, being able to get someone's attention, look at the camera here with a horn button, like stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it just looks like this kind of quaint little thing. And and not to get too like soapboxy, which I love to do, but this is why I feel is kind of nice about indie games. Like we, you know, I was saying with uh, Bomber Cyberfunk, how it lets gameplay the big developers feel doesn't have an audience still have a chance, right? Like Sega won't do it, but these fans will. And then they got the guy from Sega to make the music for it. But on the flip side of that same coin, it Indies also allow for sub-modes of successful games to kind of evolve into their own little adventure. Like, Nintendo's never going to build a whole world and a whole game just to do Wind Waker's photography feature again. But here with Tome, with, you know, smaller scale and scope, it's totally possible. And that's that's just kind of cool. So that's out this fall. Uh, I look forward to sharing impressions then. In the meantime, though, my third highlight was released as a shadow drop and I already have impressions to share. Uh, and that's Islanders Console Edition which the developers, they claim they bill it as a city-building strategy game. Honestly, it's more of a puzzle game than anything, and it's a really relaxing one at that. So um, the basic premise is pretty simple. You start with a deserted, randomly generated island and are given a choice of two packs of structures to start building, which are also randomly generated. And inside each pack are a mix of things you would need to start, you know, like inhabiting an island. So... They're, they're themed around different um, types of things you may need. So you may have to choose between a lumber pack that includes mills and lumberjacks, or you may get a farming pack that has fields and a house and a windmill. And soon that evolves into more commercial ones that have homes, apartments, city centers. You, you get the gist. Um, whatever you get, though, the goal is to place them in the smartest way to earn the most points. Because, again, unlike a strategy game or like a puzzle game, 
Islanders is uh, score-based. So as you choose your items placed on the island, each is assigned a minimum point value that you can raise by being strategic in where you place them, you know, how you angle them against other things, that sort of thing. And if you get the farming pack, for example, uh, it will contain some variances of fields and mills, as I was saying before. But placing the fields first, you know, lets you establish an area where you can then come in with a mill. You can significantly up its point value by placing it in between multiple fields, and and that's kind of the gist of it. Like you keep you keep needing to be strategic in where you put things and how they kind of mesh with one another. And the game does a really nice job of telling you just how much you can get in terms of points, both as you move the object around the map with like a little in-screen uh, on-screen point overlay, and in the top right corner, it gives you a little cheat sheet of what pairs with that object for the most points or for more points at least. Like it lists off a few different examples. And where does it gets really game, strategic... Oh. What was that? No, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was wondering, like, does this game have like any kind of um, sense of urgency? Like can you nope. essentially take as long as you want yep. to put these things or do you have like, oh, there's like a timer basically? No, it has it has no timer. There's That's where it is a little more like a strategy game, not like a puzzle game. There's no timer. There's no literally no urgency you can just kind of take your time and move it around until you find the right spot but where it gets the more more strategic beyond just like seeing what the game tells you gives you the most points is when you combine different packs of items because like some definitely need to be done in a certain way if you get the seaweed pack you need to put that seaweed at the water's edge and the equipment to harvest the seaweed along the beach but then there's also like the fishing pack while you know and while it needs to be placed at sea it has a warehouse that can also work with the farmer pack or the brewery pack and they may both come with a statue that can play nice with like more urban packs like the city one with you know housing and a city center which maybe you want to pair with a circus packet when that shows up or you know things like that so you're basically daisy chaining puzzle pieces to make the best combo just over these individual multiple placements and you know there's different configurations beyond just like upping your point score too like there's a shaman pack which has objects that pair well with logically enough a temple pack but also can be hurt and lose points if you try and like if you try and put an urban thing next to it like a like a city pack or something for say like an apartment or a city center the value will go down because it shouldn't be next to a shaman or the shaman doesn't want it next to it or that sort of thing so you know like kind of like a puzzle game each object does take up a certain amount of space. Um, in this case, it's like a grid measurement, like in a strategy game. But it also can't be moved once it's placed, like in a puzzle game. And you don't exactly know what you'll get next because they keep kind of just giving you these randomly generated packs. New packs are only generated once you hit a certain point threshold, which is NK in the bottom left corner of the screen. Um, so you're working kind of... You can be strategic, but you don't fully know what's going to happen next, and that's kind of where it's more like a puzzle game. Uh, where the devs were smart is they do show, oops, I just hit the mic. I was going to say where the devs were smart is they did show, um, in real time as you move stuff around and try and figure stuff out. Not only do they give you the point value on the piece, but they also show on the score total, um, exactly how much you gain or lose in, in towards your goal. So it does help make every decision a little less stressful and more straightforward. Um, but it is worth noting that you don't necessarily need to use up your current inventory just to get the next pack either. And that's again where deeper strategy can be because, um, you just need to hit the point threshold. Like if you play your buildings right, you can actually unlock more packs with more things to place without using up what you currently have. And that, as I'm sure you can imagine, opens up a lot more options should you be strategic strategic enough to get to that point. Like a lot of the more urban elements, I found they tend to work better once the others are established. So if you avoid the save packs initially and you only pick the, you know, like the farming, the brewery, that, that sort of thing, and then later you get a save pack where you're able to do the brewery very successfully and you can add seed packs like kind of a third set of uh, objects, those are going to be bigger values for you later and help you get more points. 
So as you go, your island keeps growing, and obviously it starts to look more and more inhabited. And it's all presented as very clean, simplistic graphic style. There's minimalist ambient music. There's, like I was saying, zero time limits. So you just kind of build at your leisure. But the incentive is to be smart in how you do it so you can maximize your points because the points do ultimately matter. It's not just like, oh, what high score can you get? If you don't meet the minimal threshold with your existing items, even if you have three, four, five packs worth of items, if you don't hit whatever they tell you the point threshold is and you run out of items, it's game over and you start your score new. If you do hit the threshold enough times and fill your island, the game then actually takes you to a whole new island and you do start fresh, but you keep your score. So you get a new slate, a new deck of cards, so to speak, of item packs, but your score is still there. And ultimately, that's how you keep like racking up your score. And then once you're finally done, there's an online leaderboard where you can submit your score and see how you actually fared against other people in their islands. So it's kind of a cool system. It's like a weird – it's mostly puzzle game, but there's definitely strategy game elements. Um, if I had one complaint about the game, it'd probably be that the controls do have a bit of a learning curve to them. This was initially a PC game. That's why it's console edition. So they kind of mapped it over kind of funky. Like you can move around the island with the left stick. You can rotate the camera angle of the island with ZL and ZR. You can rotate individual items on the island as you place them with LNR. What they weirdly don't tell you is if you want precise movement with the object you're about to place down, the right stick lets you do that, which seems like a very odd thing not to say given how the smallest of nudges can actually change your score for better or worse depending on how it's placed next to other objects. Um, like it comes off like the only way you can do it is moving with the else with the left stick, which moves your perspective of the island too. So you have like these big sweeping motions to place your items. But in reality you do have more precision and and you can also zoom in and out which helps with some of that using the face buttons it's a bit clunky but but it works um but beyond that issue like i really have zero complaints it's such a neat little riff on strategy and puzzle games it's colorful it's like i said it's like really relaxing experience and i think best of all because of how it's structured it's something you can play for a few minutes or a few hours like if you want to just work on one island you can save your score progress pick it up later it takes like 10 15 minutes maybe to do an island if you want to really gun for a high score again that kind of arcadey high score loop the variety that comes with jumping from island to island does help keep you hooked a bit like it, it every island looks visually different they're all based on these big bold colors so you really do feel like you're making progress and yeah it's just this kind of quirky little puzzle strategy game um islanders console edition the best part is only five bucks so um yeah, bucks? I, yeah it's only yeah. five bucks i thought I was it was gonna be at 10 or 15 10 after all that you were saying what i was expecting like at least 10 after everything you just said Right? Like the developers, I mean, it's fine because the developers actually sort of gauge your expectations to not expect much for five bucks. Like, it, literally in the press materials for the game, it's like, it says something along the lines like, we're just three people, so don't expect like a civilization. Like, it's straight up like, we're just three people, expect less. But when you frame it as a puzzle game, it's actually well worth the five dollars. And especially, you know, like, it's for a game where I, I usually gravitate towards more intense games, so it was nice to have this change of pace. And yeah, I'd recommend it. If this sounds at all interesting, I definitely recommend it. it. It's pretty well done. It's pretty fun. It's procedurally generated, so um, or not procedurally, randomly generated. Same thing. So um, you're you know, it, it really has infinite replay value as long as you like the mechanic a lot. So yeah, that that's uh, that's Islanders console edition. Um, while we've been and and you know we while we have been talking a lot about new games and wants to look ahead to Angel, I know you wanted to touch on. A situation happening in the other direction. Uh, you and I were going to have a bit of a throwback game night with the Wii U last weekend until it broke. 
Yeah, that was kind of disappointing, but the... I guess in short, the Switch is just... I mean, the Switch. The Wii U is just overheating. Um, it just shut... Yeah, like after about like 30 minutes of playtime, it shut off. I had like a blinking red light. I had already noticed that happening a couple days earlier, but I thought like, all right, maybe it just needs a... You know, a new adapter. Because the one it came with already showed like some damage. But apparently that's not it. And you can it's definitely overheating because the back of it gets really, really hot. So what What can you, and, like, what did, did Nintendo, what happens now? Yeah, so, you know, so the first thing I did, you know, I had just gotten off of, like, you know, working with Nintendo to get my Switch fixed in incredible speed. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to call them up. They'll probably refurbish it or something. Kind of like they did the other one. Didn't really care how much it would cost because at that point it's like giving it a, a new lease on life. And... No, yeah, they they just uh, bluntly told me, like, yeah, you're going to have to take this to, like, a specialty shop because we no longer carry any parts. They said, I think the only part they had for a Wii U was a battery cover. <laughs> for the gamepad? That was it. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, they said that, yeah, that I'm going to have to take it somewhere and get it repaired that, yeah, they don't no longer do any kind of Wii U repairs. And, I don't know, I wasn't super surprised, but... I could definitely say I thought at least like you know one generation back you'd still be safe like I'm not really expecting them to do Super Nintendo fixes but I do remember it wasn't until like within the last 10 years that like they cut off some of those really mm-hmm. old consoles because apparently they were still like mm-hmm. fixing them it's like damn I guess they just really wanted to get yeah, away from like, the Wii U but I understand on some level why you know Nintendo would produce a lot of extra parts for the Wii U given how little it sold but at the same time it's not that old they, they discontinued it in 2017 that's not that long ago there are 13 million of them out there in the world so it's sort of like yeah I was gonna say if anything like because so few of them quote unquote yeah. were sold like they should really go out of their way to help out those people that actually supported them seriously in their time of need. like to drop it like a rock is such a they're abandoning yeah it. the way they're <laughs> dying like a rock is such a bummer especially since you know I think there are some games that should someone's Wii U break, that's it. There's no getting them back. Like, obviously ones that aren't as gamepad dependent can be ported. So I don't know if it's about, like, the end of something like, I don't know, what's an eShop game on the Pushmo World? I don't know if Pushmo World is like, oh, no, we can't get Pushmo World. You know, before I mentioned Wind Waker HD, like, that could still come to Switch that with its photography mode. Like, that's fine. You know, even, I guess, a game like Wii Sports Club, that could be Switch-bound. And I'm actually kind of shocked it isn't now that I think about it because, you know, Wii Sports... But online seems like the perfect gimme for Switch Online subscribers in the same way a Tetris 99 or a Pac-Man 99 or a retro Super Nintendo game can be. But but like I'm referring more to the games that need the gamepad to work. Like I don't understand. Like one of the games we were playing we were playing to play was Nintendo Land. Which how do you even do that without requiring multiple switches? And arguably, I don't think this is too scandalous of a statement to make. Arguably, Nintendo Land is one of the probably all-time greats of Nintendo multiplayer experiences. It's just, like, lost in a void. Unless, I guess, you go third-party to a repair shop or something, which, hey, third third type of shop for talking shop this episode. Look at that. But um, what are you going to do, Angel? Yeah, there's a... I guess a shop I'm going to go to later today. I think it's called, like, One Up Repairs mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, it's somewhere in Culver City. Um, so I'm probably just going to head over oh, there. Oh, you're not going to be far from and, me. <laughs> I'm gonna make and you commit to hanging out on a recording. Just drop it off. 
<laughs> it looks like they have um, a bunch of other cool stuff in that shop as well, so we'll take a look around. And there's apparently some other things to look at around, so we'll probably make a day of it. But Nice, nice. Yeah, so it should be fun. And, you know, just looking forward to getting that. Were you repaired? Have a consistent way to play Nintendo Land, and yeah, maybe I mean because it's already unsupported, maybe just looking to just modding the the heck out of it. Yeah, I mean you can't void a warranty. Apparently, very... for like third party repair shops, like because I'm sure they are going to be able to help you. Like the fact that I don't know, I, I think it's yeah. so cool that there are still repair shops that Exist. like sort of not that they probably just solely dedicate themselves to to like game consoles, but fact that there are repair shops that are going to be able to do that is pretty cool. Yeah, because I called them yesterday and I tell them, like, oh yeah, it's overheating. They're like, oh yeah, no problem. We could do that. I'm like, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely Sounds like it's a known it's awesome. issue. Which makes it more bizarre that Nintendo's oh, yeah. just like, meh. Like, come on, guys. Like, it's it's not that old a system. You you still support the eShop on it. You still let people put money <laughs> into it. Can we interest you in a Nintendo Switch? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but, but now yeah. I think about it, it's more absurd because literally you can still give them money in the Wii U for the Wii U eShop and yet they don't support it that's yeah. so strange um nice yeah what what modes were we actually going to play when we did Nintendo Land last weekend what were you thinking like what's your go-to mode of the bunch I don't know I mean there aren't that many multiplayer ones at least like once well like, I mean you gotta have a favorite right like immediately I can say Mario Chase is the one I always like want to do first although Animal Crossing Sweet Day is pretty great too but um, I guess I'd Sweet Day would probably be my go-to. I mean, Mario Chase is great, but that one is very unbalanced. Like, the Mario... If the people are competent, like, the Mario should never win, basically. Um, um, did you just bulk yeah, insult our entire group of friends? Because you always won as Mario <laughs> in the early days. Oh, I mean, probably in the early days when we didn't really... Know the, know the meta of Mario but... Chase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the meta of Mario. Because there is definitely a meta. I mean, at least like... Because there's like a, a specific group of friends that I play with sometimes that... Yeah, whenever we're playing with them, like the Mario never, ever, ever wins. It's like basically impossible. Like someone would have to like really drop the ball. But, but you know, it still makes it a really fun, chaotic game. But I think I prefer Sweet Day. It feels a little more... A little more balanced. Sweet Day but, feels... Um, you know, they're both... But, but they're both Sweet Day really feels though. slightly more strategic. I mean, some people like the imbalance. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say Sweet Day feels a little more strategic because you have to kind of like pick your – not your lane, but you need to pick – actually, yeah. You kind of have to – it's like a it's like a very light MOBA. You have to like pick – or like a Pokemon Unite. You have to like pick your lane of who's going to go which way to get which candies and then kind of distract the other pr- – huh. It's it's like – I don't remember that it's, uh So basically it's a, it's very – it's a, it's like a Pac-Man maze kind of, like a top-down. But your um, – some people are villagers. Some people are the two police dogs, and well, one person. Oh yeah, one person's two police dogs, dogs on the game. Oh no, I remember. Yeah, you yeah, each yeah, step yeah, yeah. And I you kind of have to now. strategize around them, and that one yeah, was pretty candy. Um, yeah, it's. I I wish there was a way to get it working because I mean the thing that was so great about Nintendo Land is it because of the gamepad you really had different experiences for different players, like different views entirely. You can't. Unless you get one by switches, there's no way to recreate that where you can inhibit the view of one player while having the view of something different for all the other players. So that's, yeah, I think that's lost in time now, essentially. I also just appreciate that Nintendo Land was a fan service mashup like Smash Bros, but managed to do it in such a different way, you know? Like, it has so many Nintendo franchises, but it's so different in its approach, which was kind of cool. But, yeah. I think what really sucks is that the quicker Nintendo drops Wii U support... 
the harder it becomes to be able to, you know, not just like be like, oh, I want to play this, but to like preserve this in any way beyond, you know, these sorts of experiences. Like, it's a topic we've talked a lot about before. This idea of, I guess, preservation and, uh, you know, how it's becoming more difficult with ever evolving games as services and libraries like Xbox Game Pass and all that. And you know, we're we're making the trade of long term long time accessibility for cheaper pricing and ease of access in the immediate short term, which is kind of something I think everyone collectively has been like, yeah, okay, because like Game Pass is a steal, no doubt. But what I think is bugging me about this Nintendo Land thing and the Wii U situation is we're referring to a library of games that predate some of these preservation concerns. Like the Wii U, like we were saying, is it's only it's from twenty twelve. It's like eight years old and uh nine years old. And yet officially at least without, you know, going to a third party repair shop, officially from Nintendo, there is no way for you to dig back into Nintendo Land or a game like Game of Wario. It's just this like I hope that means they're planning a I don't even know how they can exactly. do it without like forcing you to incorporate like another and that's switch. and that's the thing it's you kind of need that and it's this you can have it on the tv that would and work. i think what bothers me almost as badly as the fact that we can't play those games is this slow but steady realization that even for games we think we have complete control over physical copies stuff stored in our system memories and not on a remote server somewhere the experiences of those games can still be fleeting it's so weird to think about but the, i think the strongest example of this was there's a story i saw in destructoid a couple weeks back it highlighted a Redditor who took his 3DS with him around New York City for a day and got zero street passes. And I remember doing the exact same thing when visiting New York, like in the heyday of the 3DS. And for years, I'd get at least a handful every day on the trip. Or, you know, we'd all go conventions. We'd have so many street passes we need to dedicate time just to go through them while, you know, standing in line throughout yeah, the day. Yeah, had to do a street pass. Yeah, call. exactly. And it was, a, it was such a cool way to like sort of passively connect with fellow Nintendo fans, you know, swap puzzle pieces, build up your me population, use these folks in the little Street Pass games. And now, even though we still have the software and those individual games are all on our 3DSs and we purchased them and we can go access them, the actual experience of the game is gone. Like, never likely to be achieved again, certainly not at the same scale it was, because you need the other people. Again, it's this weird thing that like it's fleeting and something that's it's just odd to think about that a game that pre-existed and seemed like a, you know, oh yeah, this is just how you play this game, like just the MO that I'm saying MO a lot stuff so, but the, the the thing that makes it possible was temporary and it's gone. And we're never going to be able to recreate that experience. And it's just so weird and the, your Wii U things like basically the same situation. Unless you go, you know, rogue and modded or solder your own battery or whatever but in terms of official support it's gone and it's just really well weird. i mean at this point like it doesn't really yeah, matter it's, yeah it's just so weird it's, it's and what's super weird about it is even games that feel like they are preservable they aren't exactly in the way we current experience currently experience them like i i think one thing you know we we're going to talk about this episode new donk city in mario golf super rush you know brand new course and we'll get to it in a sec here i mean spoiler i like it a lot but uh you know what's weird about that is I have a physical copy of Super Rush, right? And this update was not DLC. It was not an add-on. It's an update to the core game. But in 10 or 15 years from now, if something happens to my hard drive and you know we move on to the – or not my, my solid-state drive and we move on to the Switch 2 Super Deluxe 8K U uh, Plus Lite, whatever, and the eShop on the original Switch is dead, I can't just get back New Donk City's course. Like it's gone. It's fleeting as well. 
And that's just weird to think about. They're going to have to buy that complete edition. But they probably won't sell one. They never made an arms complete edition or a Splatoon complete edition. Like, it's... They did a Mario Kart one. True. So one out of three. But but I don't know. It's just so weird that, like, everything we assume is, like, just locked in. Like, this is what it is, is not. Do you think they'll do one for Smash Brothers? Because, I mean, that's It's the same problem, yeah. Like, I, I mean, imagine if your Switch's memory dies and it's 2030 and you want, and this is a good example because I know you and your family do this, you go back to the N64 one a lot. This is the same time range we're talking about here. You know, 1999 to 2021, jump again that same distance into the future, but you don't have a working solid state drive on your Switch. Half the roster is missing and there's no way to get it back. It's weird. It's like gaming is like temporary. It's so strange. So, well, that's why you gotta appreciate what. Yeah, time yeah. Is. And while, while we're on the topic of appreciating things in the moment, definitely more looking forward than anything. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, which oh, yeah. which is strange. But while we're on the topic of things to appreciate in the moment, I mentioned New Donk. Let's get into it. We got this update that Toadette as a playable character. It had an online ranked play, and it added the New Donk City course all for free. Um. I know, Angel, you've played it because I played it with you. Kevin, you haven't tried it, right? I didn't even know it was out. <laughs> Dude, you got to follow Nintendo's Twitter. They they announced it and released it within 12 hours. <laughs> I do. I I mean, I do follow their Twitter. It just They just don't mm. show up on my fair, feed. Fair, fair. But yeah, it, uh, they announced it on like a Tuesday morning, or I think a Monday night. It came out a Tuesday night or something like that. So it was very quick turnaround. Um, but yeah, I recommend checking it out. Uh, but Angel, what do you, you think of it? Uh, it's fun. I mean, we played it in reverse. Like, we played the hardest yeah, difficulty did. first, and then we went down to easy, and damn, I feel like I, I feel like we definitely should have done it the other way around, because, man, like, I am terrible at New Dog City. Like, I don't know what it is about the map. Actually, part of it is also, it's been a while since we played Mario Golf, or since I played Mario Golf, and I did not... I take the win into account at all. I think like like the first half of our session. It wasn't until like the very end where I was like finally starting to, I guess, feel like I was getting back to normal. But yeah, I think I was like at negative like twenty something at some point. And one of them I did kind of botch. Um, I did a horrible mistake in the beginning that I'm just like ah whatever I'll just throw this one away. But yeah, I can't blame my entire score to that. But yeah, the the track's very segmented. I don't know if there's like a I mean, I think, yeah, you could definitely do a speed golf on it, but it's not like another one where... It's not like the other courses where you could essentially run around everywhere. It's like you're, I guess, warped around New Dock City. Yeah. Like, you're warped... Like, mainly a lot of rooftops. Like, rooftops definitely make up, like, the majority of the... I'd say it's, like, the, half, but it's a lot, the yeah. Yeah, and, you know, for better or worse, like, I mean, it makes them all a lot harder. Like, you pretty much have to be on point otherwise you know you're gonna your ball's gonna be falling off a lot or you know you're gonna be overshooting it or undershooting it and you could end up in weird places i somehow ended up like under the stage at one point oh yeah so like no matter where i hit the ball like i'm gonna hit the ceiling and sure enough i did and then it finally worked me to the mm-hmm. correct spot but i mean overall like i definitely want more courses mm-hmm. like this like you know just give us more theme bones give us one inside bowser's castle or something but I mean, if this is a sign of things to come, this is great. But if this is just a one and done thing, like that's it's a tease. If it's a one and done, yeah. I I think because I think for me, like I think you kind of hit the nail on the head about how like cool this is and that this is the this is the whimsy I wanted out of Mario Golf. Like there's 
arguably this is a less than ideal approach they took here because like I think the fact that half the holes just have you ping-ponging back and forth down the same two streets is a bit weird and you know like there's odd things like the the fire hydrant sound effect when you're down on street level is weirdly loud and unbalanced compared to other sounds and you could you could even make the argument that like it's kind of cheap how they clearly just reuse Mario Odyssey's assets for this but then like as you play it as you get to the rooftops like you're talking about you know, you're, you're you're golfing from rooftop to rooftop. You're golfing off steel beams, over buildings, past jump pads that you then run to jump between buildings, uh, you know, along girders and all of that, like, ridiculousness. <laughs> it, it Like, it's fully leaning in on not being a golf game, but a Mario golf game. And that that was fun. Like, even, honestly, the, the whole thing, both uh, the easy and hard difficulties keep a par three for the entire thing. And I actually kind of like that because this course... How it's designed is almost like mini golf. Like you still need to account for wind and the like, but also you can choose to kind of use the course obstacles to your advantage. You can ricochet off buildings should you find that beneficial, you know, stuff like that. So instead of going for distance, you're going for all these other elements and the shorter par means you get to experience the new elements sooner and it kind of just feels very like fast and light. And yeah, I think like you said, I'd like to see Camelot double down this. I mean, even if they want to do the same sort of just quick asset swapping thing, like give us other Mario locales from other games and just reuse those assets. We're not asking yeah, like, much. We're literally asking you to do those Yeah, like how fun would it be to have a course inside the amusement park for Mile Delfino or like what? Or I guess it's up to Nintendo. I, it's both. It's both. But like I think like the Isle Delfino amusement park would be cool. I think uh, Mario Galaxy Planet would be cool. I mean, immediately Gusty Gardens comes to mind because it can do all sorts of stuff with the wind. Um, maybe an airship from Mario 3D World you know, while the islands from Bowser's Fury, like they can use existing assets and just shove some golf inside. Like I don't mind. Um, but what, what gives me hope, um, and also I guess transitions us into, what I guess is our third figurative uh, talking shop of this episode is Mario golf sold quite well, which means that more updates are most likely going to happen. Like I can't see Nintendo squandering this given how well it's sold. Um, which means yes, welcome one and all to Nintendo's quarterly financials for the third uh, or not the third, the first quarter of this fiscal year, which is April to June of 2021. I don't know why I'm announcing it like we're at Carnival or something, but anyway, yes, seriously, Mario Golf, like, it did have a really good start in the five-day window it had on this report. It sold 1.3 million copies, which means it did, um, in one work week, it outsold every single Mario Golf game except the N64 original, which... It's about to outsell as well. Don't you worry. Uh, the N64 version sold 1.47 million copies. So literally in five days, Super Rush is only 130,000 shy of being the best-selling Mario Golf ever. And I'm sure by now it's past it because it was on the MPU chart again in July. So there is hope that we will get more uh, updates with more crazy courses because it's the best-selling entry in a franchise that's been around since, like, 2000. So... So does that mean Nintendo is winning? Well, we kind of, so I think I think Mario Golf is kind of indicative of a bigger part of the story with these financials. The switch bump, right? The so-called switch bump. You know, this idea where Nintendo sees higher success for its first-party games than ever before. It definitely seems alive and well. It definitely looks like Nintendo's winning on some level because, you know, we had Mario Golf in five days almost best its entire franchise. In, a, in the month that Miitopia was out, like that 30-day window, it sold 1.04 million copies, which is just 140,000 behind the lifetime sales of the original 3DS game. Again, it took a month to do what it took the 3DS version years to do. And, you know, even if you look at New Pokemon Snap, which was kind of their other big release, uh, Nintendo only provides sales numbers for outside of Japan due to the Pokemon company being the direct publisher in Japan, so Nintendo can't 
give those numbers, I guess. But um, that sold in the West 2.04 million copies. If you then decide to be me and do the math and figure out how much it sold in Japan by looking at Famitsu sales charts, uh, it looks like new Pokemon Snap is actually at 2.69 million as of right now, which is uh, less than a million away from the lifetime sales of the N64 original, which was 3.6 million. And, you know, it only took, what, three, four months to do that? So, yeah, part of the... Um, part of the story of the financials is, yeah, things are looking great because all Nintendo's games are firing on all cylinders and higher than they have in the past. The problem for Nintendo is even though each of these games is killing it compared to its predecessors, it's really hard to get out from under the shadow of last year's colossal Animal Crossing performance. I mean, like, let's be real here. How do you top, and I looked up the numbers from a year ago, how do you top in this quarter of 2020, having a 428% surge in profits driven by 10 million copies of a single game being sold. You can't. You just can't. And, you know, Nintendo can certainly try to spin it uh, in their slide presentation for these financials, which we'll link to in this episode's blog post for anyone who wants to actually like, dive into the numbers. But in there, I thought it was kind of funny how they did this cutesy thing where they are basically like, Animal Crossing was 40% of our software sales this time a year ago. If you take Animal Crossing out of the equation and look at the remaining 60% of sales, we actually did better in this Q1 with this lineup than we did in that Q1 with that not Animal Crossing part of it lineup. And it's just like, sure, <laughs> that's that's true and it's a positive, but like ultimately... Does that overpower the initial shock of seeing numbers from this quarter where like their profits dropped 17.3% year over year? The Switch hardware sales were down 21.7%. Software sales of Switch were down 10.2%. Like all three were bigger drops than analysts anticipated, even knowing Animal Crossing was a big boon, which is why now Nintendo's stock is down 9%. The single biggest drop has been down since February 2019. And that's even with them doing a stock buyback which traditionally they do um, to stop the bleeding. So it would actually be worse if they weren't buying back their own stocks. So they definitely took a hit with these financials. But the thing is, that too feels kind of like an extreme reaction. Like we can't say everything's, you know, the switch bump is carrying the company because they're obviously down, but we can't say they're completely tanking because they're still like, you know, obviously investors want the absolute most bang for their buck and will make trades with that in mind, which is why the stock is down. But it feels like Nintendo's still turning a quarterly profit of over a billion bucks a Switch still selling 4.5 million more units uh, with a bump from the OLED model on the horizon, of software st- sales still surpassing 45 million individual copies of games. Like, those are still really good numbers. I mean, the Switch's life to date is now at 89 million units, which is ahead of the lifetime sales of Xbox 360. It's ahead of the PS3. It's on the cusp of surpassing the 3DS and Wii U's total lifetime sales combined. It's like literally 40,000 away or something. And it's 12 million away from surpassing the Wii, which it certainly will do, you know, within the next, probably by the end of the holiday season. And, you know, Nintendo itself had a crazy milestone this quarter as well. They sold over 800 million consoles in their history, which is a huge number and bigger than any other console manufacturer, period. So it's kind of like what is actually going on here, right? Because you have these kind of extremes. And I think, not that I'm a financial expert, I think looking at their lineup for the rest of the year, Nintendo's almost trying to go for like quantity, not quantity over quality necessarily, but just quantity. And whether fully intentional or not, you know, because they can't top Animal Crossing. They themselves even said, um, you know, if you subtract Animal Crossing, we had a better performance of our other games this year than we did a year ago. And so I think the quantity thing, you know, whether intentionally or not, there seems to be a sort of this opportunity. They're kind of pushing the boundaries of the switch bump. 
they're doing like a litmus test of sorts. Again, I don't know if this is planned or just kind of coincidence, but it's almost like they're seeing how far they can carry the idea of just putting any franchise on there and it does better and how much they can make up for the shadow of Animal Crossing using this kind of quantity method. It's sort of like the software version of the OLED Switch being used to prop up hardware sales that are down. Like, sure, Animal Crossing, no, not many people are buying Switches. The Switch Lite in particular sold worse because a lot of people are buying the budget Switch to get Animal Crossing. The OLED Switch presumably will help counterbalance that. It looks like on the software side, they're trying to do that with just the variety of Switch bump opportunities. Like, some, you know, fit the usual Switch bump MO pretty perfectly. That's four MOs this episode. I need to find a new phrase. But, um, like, WarioWare Get it Together... That's an established, probably B-tier level franchise for Nintendo. Leans on the Switch's local multiplayer hook. That's probably going to get a boost. Metroid Dread has the advantage of the uh, OLED Switch launch to help bolster it. But in and of itself, it's a well-known performing franchise that could become even more so with the bump. Uh, and then there's like kind of, kind of some experimental ones. Like there's Mario Party Superstars, which is a new entry in an established franchise they know does well. But what's interesting here is they're trying to do the Switch bump twice. It's following up Super Mario Party which has now surpassed total sales of nearly 16 million copies, which is insane in and of itself. But the question now becomes, would an audience that switch bumped, so to speak, buy a second Mario Party that's essentially very similar to the first Mario Party, and at what rate are they going to buy it? Are we going to see 60 million in sales, 8 million in sales, 4 million in sales, 2 million in sales, like that? This will give some sort of indication if Nintendo can sort of triple dip on some of it, or double dip on some of these franchises. I think Pokemon is the only one they've released multiple for and seen multiple bumps, but each Pokemon they did was kind of different. You know, there was Let's Go, there was um, Sword and Shield, and now, the more interesting experiment, there's going to be Brilliant Diamond and Shining, Shining Pearl, which is basically posing the question of, can they juice sales numbers with what amounts to a minimal remake of the handheld experience for the first time, not a modernization to an existing engine? And even more experimental, maybe, is Advanced Wars Reboot Camp. Can a straight-up remake, same scenarios and all, of a franchise that's been dormant so much longer than any other recipient of the Switch bump generate any higher number of sales? And presumably, you know, with 89 million Switches out there, there's ample opportunity for these games to succeed at some level. I mean, if the majority of this spring's releases from Nintendo could hit 1 million sold, sorry, Famicom Detective Club, you're the only one that didn't. But if the majority can, I don't see how any of these couldn't necessarily... Uh, do similar when they have holiday releases backing them, you know, like that release window in their favor. Um, like in a way, this whole thing, as I was like looking at their line and looking at their numbers and looking at switch bump versus software being down, all that, it really kind of reminds me of what they're doing with the new play control concept they toyed with on the Wii. Do you guys remember that where they would like port GameCube games to the Wii and update them with motion controls? I think they did Jungle Bee. Yeah, the line that. <laughs> the line that stopped that Chibi yeah, Robo. Exactly. And I think, I think like what, um, the, it was like, right. So the concept was ports of GameCube games and they stopped the Chibi Robo. And the, the, the pitch that they did internally, presumably, like the idea was, okay, the GameCube has a fifth of the audience of the Wii. Well, if we bring these concepts, these games to bigger audiences, will they resonate? And does that give us a chance to sort of measure the franchise's potential and pad their lineup along the way? And here, it feels like they're kind of doing a similar thing and trying to reach similar takeaways, but with games that can actually stand on their own. And should this play out, you know, this idea of basically falling back on the B tier, falling back on ports like Skyward Sword HD, which, by the way, number one game on the July MPD charts, relatively minimal changes from a development perspective. So if this all holds in years to come, Nintendo almost has created a third angle of attack to counteract the odds of never having something as big as a scenario 
uh, as Animal Crossing at the start of a pandemic. Like, you know, in 2022, they can bring out the big guns like Pokemon Legends and Splatoon 3 and Breath of the Wild 2. And alongside those, it can do these revivals of other games, you know, ports or remakes or what, almost all of which, if you look at this year's lineup, are being developed externally by outside studios. So it's not really taking away from Nintendo's primary resources. It's basically padding the lineup where they could do more quantity and still try and hit numbers of what Animal Crossing was. And, of course, a driving factor of this year's lineup is just, you know, Nintendo needs games to sell and thinks uh, the early 2000s nostalgia would play well. But if this pans out... I don't know what's to stop them from doing a new Golden Sun, a new Tribi Robo, a new Custom Robo, a new F-Zero. You know, even earlier in the show, we were mentioning Medios. Give it a Tetris 99 approach where it's a digital release first and physical that follows. The point is, if Nintendo establishes here in 2021 that basically all their old IPs can perform well to this larger Switch crowd, regardless of what approach they take, if the Switch bump is just universal, the possibilities are basically endless for them. Even taking into account that obviously there's going to be variance in how each one performs. But they all kind of lift... If it's the, you know, the tide with the boats, like I was saying at Star Show with the indie games, like, there's an opportunity here. And it's a lesson of the Switch in general that we've seen work among third parties. I mean, the Switch bump can work wonders. We talked about, at the time, uh, that was announced that Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz, you know, it was helping to make Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania possible. And if you look at, like, the million-plus sales of The Witcher 3 and earlier in Switch Life Skyrim or the fact that multiple Saints Roads and multiple Darkstalkers have all come to Switch, I have to imagine that's a driving force, that audience, that demographic, that proof that old ports work. I have to imagine that's part of the reason that we're now getting this report that the trilogy of Grand Theft Auto remakes are not just in development but are all coming to Switch for the first time, core games on Switch. Um, I don't know if you guys actually have have seen that report. Let's pause on that for a moment. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? This GTA rumor? <laughs> uh, I have yep. not. Okay, so we got one yes, one no. But, um, yeah, def- def- definitely kind of surprised to see anything but uh, Chinatown Wars coming right? back to Switch. Yeah, like if you... I feel like if you were a Nintendo fan in the early 2000s and saw a story saying a core GTA game maybe coming to your Nintendo console, like, that would probably blow your mind. I mean, even if the report turns off turns out false, the fact that it's plausible is kind of mind-blowing in and of itself. Yet, here we are, 2021, and uh, yeah, Kotaku's reporting that GTA 3, Vice City, and San Andreas are all getting some sort of amalgamation of a remake and a remaster. Apparently, it's like the games are being redeveloped inside Unreal Engine, some sort of mix and old with new graphics, some sort of updated UI, but they're not changing the gameplay mechanics, the gameplay story beat, like none of it. It's just like a half update. Um, and it'll be hitting Switch this holiday season, along with every other console under the sun. And outside of Chinatown Wars on a DS, which is a good amount of fun, I've never actually played a GTA. Like, uh, Angel, Kevin... I imagine, I'm going to guess that, Angel, you haven't, but Kevin, you have. Is that a safe guess? Uh, yeah. I guess I've played one, but probably not the way Well, like, actually played, not just, like, tried it out. Because, yeah, I've, I've played it for five minutes once, but... Oh, I mean... It's a game I regularly played with my cousins whenever I would visit. Oh, really? Them, but huh. we didn't really do campaign stuff. You know, we would just see who could get the highest, you know, um, wanted level and who can survive with it the longest. And that's pretty much it. So, do you think if yeah. both of you played, do you think so? They're basically saying they're not changing the gameplay, they're not changing the scenarios, they're just kind of prettying it up slightly. Do they age well? Because I feel like open world games have come so far since because gta was obviously at the cusp uh, of it and really the innovator of it but i can't really speak to that but i would imagine just the running away from the cops would still age fine Ken, kevin did you play it more fully 
tricky one. Than just running away from the cop. Did you I'm play sorry. the games more fully than just how Angel played? Like, have you actually gone through? Yeah, I think I, I think I beat San Andreas. I don't remember. Uh, I played a little bit of Vice City. Never played three. Huh, interesting. But would they age well? Uh, as someone who also played, I didn't play four, but I played a lot of five. Well, I guess just the main story. I never got into GTA mm-hmm. Online. Uh, they're very similar, but there's definitely not as much to do in those games as there is in five. Mm-hmm. So if there are people that have played five that then picked up a switch and I mean, this is going to come out on the other, on the other consoles yeah. and PC as well, but assuming they're picking it up for switch, people might be disappointed by the, by the lack of amounts of things to do as compared to five and maybe even four. But like I said, I, I never played four. Um, but I know people really like the story of Vice City uh, and San Andreas compared to some of the New Year entries. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, people might find that more entertaining. Mm-hmm. But as far as, like I said, the activities, that's where people might think that they dropped the ball. I see. And, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, it's coming to all the systems. They're also doing the next-gen PS5, Xbox One, like, up-res of GTA Five this holiday season as well. So not only are, do they have to compete with GTA Five being in people's minds, but they're literally doing these ports at the same time and releasing them nearly simultaneously. So that's probably going to make that contrast even more noticeable, which is a questionable move on uh, Rockstar's part. Like, why would they cannibalize their own potential sales? Uh, no, this is going to sell millions. Oh, like, yeah, it I does guess, not right. matter. Yeah, yeah, GTA is going to... It is always it's uh, like a blockbuster event. Well, I guess a new one, but this is still going to sell like crazy. It's crazy that GTA Five is still on the charts years later. Like it's it's unstoppable. Yeah, but I I do think um I think it's the highest grossing game now. At I this think it point. might be. I think it might have su- surpassed Minecraft. But yeah, I mean sure. the pivot they did, like props to Rockstar, the pivot they did to turn GTA from a single player experience into GTA Online and make this kind of living breathing world that you know isn't it's not. Fortnite level of like metaverse crazy but like it is sustaining itself extremely well and continues to be on the top of the charts but it's also very controversial because like now who knows how long until we get a GTA 6 yeah. because GTA Online is their cash cow yeah, I know Red Dead Online is nowhere near as successful so I wonder if Rockstar would just want to make a Red Dead 3 instead you know interesting thing about that a- before they ever get to GTA apparently, 6 apparently if these remasters do well for Grand Theft Auto Next on the on the not chopping block, but next in line would be Red Dead One and Two, and it would include a Switch version of Red Dead One. So, okay, yeah, I was gonna say because there's yeah. no, no no shot no, that a Switch not. version of Red Dead Two happens. Yeah, no, it would, it would not just be at all. One. But I, I think off nostalgia alone, it's gonna do really well on Switch because like there is that audience of people who like maybe you know lapsed gamers who had a PS2 when they were younger and played it then, wanting to like kind of go back into it, and the flexibility to play on the go, yeah. Uh, Switch version of Red Dead 1 would be awesome because I've been wanting to get back into that game and the only way to do it right now is by either having an Xbox console or a PS3 or PS4 and unfortunately I have neither. They've never ported it to uh, to PC so having it on the Switch would actually be really, really cool. Especially Undead Nightmare which is probably like the best piece of downloadable content ever. High praise. <laughs> I was going to say, well, if if you really want Red Dead, um, here's your litmus test. Here's your switch bump test with GTA. So you got to buy GTA to tell Rockstar you want. It's like that stupid Capcom thing of, oh, we're testing the waters. But honestly, that 
that seems to be what the case is. I probably won't buy it, but I know millions yeah, of people yeah. won't, so I don't have to worry. And I think I think for Nintendo, it's just another you know quantity over um, anything else thing. Is like if they can get three GTAs on the Switch at once, they get a cut of that. They get you know that software sales in their pocket. That's hardware sales driven by GTA. You know that's that's it's going to help them, and it won't fill an Animal Crossing boy, but combined with everything else, it's all going to help. Um, yeah, you know, GTA aside, Switch Bump aside, there is another part of Nintendo's roadmap and finances I feel so many people are writing off with their concerns of the profit and sales, you know, going down because there's no Animal Crossing, and that's the IP expansion stuff. And right now, if you go to Universal Studios Hollywood, there's a big old sign promoting that Super Nintendo World is under construction, and they just, last week, I think, put up a mini pop-up of merch within one of the stores. And it's a lot of merch. Like, they're already, like, starting to cash in on the Super Nintendo World buzz. Um, Angel and I were actually we were trying to go at one point until we realized you have to go into the park to get it yeah that was a pretty disappointing realization for sure how much is the price to get it's in like I'm into 99 studios bucks? In the it's like hun- yeah it's like, it's like 120 Jesus. something Never and mind. like as fun as it would be to spend a day at Universal I don't know if I want to pay 100 bucks just to go to the Nintendo store because I don't want to stand around in that crowd with Delta variant flying about but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you saw some of the merch angel, right? Like you, you've seen videos and stuff. Is there Bowser stuff, or is there stuff you yeah, wish they, you had? There's a there's a lot of stuff that looks like, you know, by the number of stuff you could get anywhere. Like I saw some people posting pics, like, oh my god, I want that Yoshi plush, and I'm like, it looks just like any Yoshi plush that you could get anywhere. <laughs> but, but it's um, exclusive, Angel. It's exclusive to a pop up, which means it's way cooler. It doesn't even have like a little logo on the bottom or anything. It's just a regular the neon Yoshi Bowser plush. shirt is pretty. Cool. Yeah, that yeah. that is pretty cool. But Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a lot of there. At least there is some exclusive stuff. Like you mentioned that neon Bowser shirt that has like his name in kanji. There's like another Bowser shirt that looks like it's more like Bowser's, I like guess torso as a shirt. There's the Bowser hats. There's some pins. There's some other enemy stuff. Maybe the enemy stuff is more interesting because, you know, the Mario, Peach, Luigi, Yoshi stuff just looks like stuff that's already available. But yeah, it's just cool. I like that Bowser. Yeah. I'll try to get it somehow. I mean, they, they, maybe they'll expand it to City Walk, the merch, who knows. But, and I think, you know, if nothing else, when the park opens, obviously there's going to be so much more merch. And, and even for Nintendo, that's so many more people to indoctrinate into the world of Nintendo and, like, get, you know, get them interested in Mario and Switch and all that. Because, like, the, the thing is with um, their IP expansion, you know, we ra- I rattled off all those drops Nintendo had in revenue, in, uh, in profit, in, sale, in hardware and software sales. IP expansion was pretty flat this year, uh, this year-over-year quarter. It was down less than a percent. And that's without, you know, Super Nintendo World in motion. That's just with, like, licensing deals with Levi's and stuff. So once this gets in motion, if they're able to hold steady as is when everything else looks down, you know, there's only ample opportunity there to grow. And and even before Nintendo World opens, one thing, we, uh, arguably a bigger draw for bri- broader audience is the Illumination Mario movie. That's still happening. It's slated for roughly next year. Like it's very soon, relatively speaking, and I think that's again all the merch, all the all the attention. That's going to be another boon for them that I think people are kind of underestimating. And we we actually just perhaps unintentionally got our first nugget of information about the movie's premise. Um, someone noticed in an interview with comedian Sebastian uh, Montescalo, who you may not know as the guy that hosted the VMAs when they were in New Jersey last uh, last year. But anyway, he randomly mentioned in some podcast interview that he's not just in the Mario movie, but he's playing Spike, their boss. And these days, Spike is the enemy that spits those Spike balls. 
But in the early Mario days, like namely the Wrecking Crew days on the NES, Spike is the foreman at the construction site, which opens up a lot of interesting ideas about the movie. Like, could it be an origin story when they're in New York? Is Donkey Kong in it since he, you know, storms a construction site? And yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just it's kind of nice to know there's motion happening with the movie and, and that there is potential. And would you want an origin story? Or do you, are you worried it's going to like – because technically the 90s live action one was also an origin story. Yeah, I mean they're probably going to do some kind of origin story. Maybe, even if it's not Mario Luigi's per se, but just like introduce some third character. Maybe the Spike is going to be a more prominent role or maybe he's going to be like there in the first 10 minutes and then we just never see him That's again. my guess. That's awesome, but, my guess. But I mean at this point, the only thing I just want to see is just the art direction because that is either going to... Make me even more excited because of how on model it is, but there is no way illumination is not gonna, like, I don't twist the designs in their own way. And I'm just gonna say it probably for worse, just because I don't know. Like, anytime I see Bowser in some kind of other artistic representation, where you know, just fan art of Bowser in general, just like in other styles, I don't know what it is about Nintendo's wizardry, but anytime they change Bowser's art style, you know, whether it's Bowser in Odyssey to Paper Bowser, like, he always looks very Bowsery. I don't know. He just looks right. But whenever I see other people put their hand in, like, they'll make him a little more squared off or give him bigger eyes or something. Like, I don't know, it just looks wrong. It- and I'm just really hoping... Whatever this direction goes for any of the Mario just doesn't look wrong and still feels like Mario, but I guess we'll have to see. Think... I'm just expecting everyone to look like they belong in the, in the Despicable oh, universe. Oh, no. Basically. Oh, God. Oh, no. So everyone's going to be like... Or, I mean, pretty much like any of their movies, because other characters are kind of known for having, like, big heads, lanky bodies with, like, big torsos. So that might work well for Luigi, but it might make for a weird-looking Mario. So I don't know. I mean, if they make it, if they do kind of the approach of the uh, figurine, what's the brand that does the figurines with the big heads and the tiny bodies? You know what I'm talking about? What? Pop? No, not Pop. No, the not Japanese the brand. Pop ones? The posable ones. They have Mario. They have Luigi. Not Nin- Nendoroid? Yeah. Like, if they did that sort of ratio, maybe, because that kind of works for Mario. But, but yeah. That does, I, but, yeah. I, but they're... I, I think the reason Bowser always looks good with Nintendo is Nintendo had some really intense guidelines that everyone that does you know stuff directly with nintendo has to follow for their characters like i remember they put out these employee handbooks like once a year um to try and get new recruiters or new recruits to come join the company like the recruitment books and they show the inner workings of nintendo sometimes you know they'll show photos of this thing or some documents of that or, or concept art of different characters or controllers or what have you and i remember i think in one of them they showed a peek at the style guide for bowser for mario for luigi and the amount of detail, the exact height ratio, the ratios within the character, like it's it's the ratios between the characters, like it's it's crazy how much how like tight they keep that. I think probably as a knee jerk reaction to how loose they were in the early nineties and how there's so much weird merch that's technically especially in the eighties actually, that's technically licensed but like looks nothing like the characters. And it, it's very Disney-like in that regard because I know Disney's very particular about like Mickey's ear positioning and stuff. So hopefully that transfers over to the animation style a little. Um, I think the the thing that's giving me hope 
to your point about how it looks, and even to my concern about it, like an origin story reminds me of the older <laughs> Mario movie, is Miyamoto is directly involved. So like if the creator Mario himself is comfortable with That's it. That's good to hear. Yeah. So the creator himself – I mean not only is he directly involved, but the, the relationship between Nintendo and Illumination is such that now – the head of Illumination is on the board of Nintendo as an outside director that gives like advice, basically. So there's some good synergy of some sort happening there, and that gives me a lot of hope that the movie's going to be what Nintendo wants it to be, not so much what Illumination wants it to be, which means hopefully, even if it's an origin story, it feels not like forced. If it's you know the animation style, it, it makes sense with what we know Mario looks like. Maybe a little stylized, but not like you know. To your point, Bowser looking like off. Maybe he'll just look a style in the same way he does in a Paper Mario. But yeah, that that's the thing yeah, I'm kind of like holding on to it. for dear life is that because Nintendo is so closely involved, and because now it's a two way street with Illumination, you know, at Nintendo, um, that clearly they see something in it, and that is promising. And it's kind of cool that they're doing such a callback to Spike from Wrecking Crew. Like, that's a I mean, I, I, when they, when I saw the story, I was like, Spike the enemy, and I actually had to look up what they were talking about. Like, that's actually a pretty, like, deep cut. So, you know, it's not going to be some, like, slap together, hey, you know, Yoshi, he's a dinosaur. They're actually like, going for the world that's already established, which is nice. So, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, the trailer, if it's coming out next year, it's roughly next year. So if it's coming out next year, we could be getting a trailer, you know, next six months or so, presumably. So, oh, man. Yeah. That first trailer. Yeah. Do I even watch it? Yeah, don't want to be super surprised. I don't know. Maybe I'll just watch the first trailer. Then we'll see. Yeah, I'm gonna watch them all, even though I know I shouldn't, because I don't want to be spoiled. I mean, I couldn't resist watching the Detective Pikachu trailers like repeatedly. So, yeah, yeah. But just to, uh, I guess, sort of. Unless Kevin, do you have any thoughts on the uh, Mario movie? Uh, hopefully it's good. Agreed. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. not much. There. So, As- aside from what what we just mm-hmm. talked about, aside from that, I really have no input. I just. You know, just hope it's good. Yeah, there's a lot on the line here, I feel like, for Nintendo. Because this is like their big play for IP expansion. Besides the theme park, of course. But this is a big play because they say they want to do other movies and stuff. So if this doesn't work, that's a huge chunk of change that Nintendo's risking. So, But just put kind of a bow on this segment and really the whole episode. I don't think necessarily... Like I'm not trying to like hand wave away concerns about Nintendo's numbers being down or you know blindly saying everything's peachy or rosy, um, but I think through this conversation about their IP expansion and through you know their Switch bump and all that, I do think that Animal Crossing was this moment of catching lightning in a bottle, and Nintendo can very well have all these other avenues to make money as we discussed, but the odds of them suddenly catching that lightning a second time seem pretty slim. But the thing about these other avenues is as a Nintendo fan, it's actually really exciting. We're seeing old favorites come back, current favorites presented in new ways, not just in games but in theme parks and movies, you name it. Um, the strength of the Switch up to this point, even if sales do fall off a cliff as, in, a cliff, as improbable as that is, uh, it means the lineups we saw in stuff like Indie World are just going to keep coming because the user base is so strong at 89 million. So like, frankly, right now, in my opinion, is a really fun time to be a Nintendo fan. And it's exciting to see what's on the horizon – even if all the analysts and all the stock are saying otherwise, like in this moment, it's it's pretty fun to be a Nintendo fan. So, unless you guys have any further thoughts on anything, I think we could probably end the episode there. Any any last second topics you want to throw in? 
Now just really hoping my Wii U gets repaired so I could get back into more, I guess, a retro gaming. Yeah, you have to let us know. to plug in all these other things, but yeah. You have to let us know next episode if you got working and what, what you did. And for the record, we don't condone piracy, but Nintendo screwed his warranty over. There is no more warranty, so whatever. <laughs> um, it's just a piece of tech now. Yep, exactly. But yeah, so I guess with that, um, be sure to tune in next weekend for our next random Nintendo, where I promise you won't hear any sales numbers from me. Uh, and then the weekend after that, on August 29th, we'll be back with our usual news and games of random Nintendo. Uh, including our takes on whatever's coming out of Pokemon Presents that's occurring this week. Um, supposedly new Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl and Pokemon Legend Arceus information and who knows what else. So we'll, we'll be covering that. Maybe some great Ace Attorney impressions, depending on how far we get in the story. Um, but to see what we actually end up talking about, follow us on Twitter at Ram Nintendo. Subscribe to us on all the podcast apps. We're on the one you're listening to, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, our YouTube channel is uh, RamNintendo.com. And I think – oh, and individually, we're on we're on the Twitters. Uh, I am JSR7. Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. Kevin is KVN Gomi. And I think that just about does it. Kevin, do you have a final word for us? Bring back the old Coke Zero formula. I barely finished this one. <laughs> <laughs>